I'm Marcelo Lewin, and this is the Contentful Creators Podcast, Season 1, Episode 2. So let's get to it. Hello and welcome to Season 1, Episode 2 of the Contentful Creators Podcast, where I have weekly conversations with content architects, designers, developers, and other creators who use the Contentful content platform and related technologies to create web experiences. I'm your host, Marcelo Lewin, a content creator, developer, project manager, and a certified Contentful professional. Today, I'm having a conversation with Matt Foyle, a senior solutions engineer at Algolia, which offers a search API. But before we get started, if you want more podcast episodes, tutorials, webinars, blog articles, or to register for a meetup, all focus on creating web experiences using Contentful and related technologies, please visit www.contentfulcreators.com. All right, Matt, welcome to the podcast. Thank you very much for having me. I'm glad to have you here. First of all, did I pronounce Algolia correctly? Bang on. Yeah, that's an easy one to typo and also to get wrong when you're speaking publicly. I've been there. But yeah, you did it perfectly. Excellent. Why don't we start out by you telling us a little bit about yourself, your background and how you got to Algolia? Sure thing. So even though my job involves engineering, And solutions engineering basically means doing engineering in the field with customers, matching up the product with their use case, making sure the two align well, and making sure that any customization they need can be done with a reasonable level of effort. I don't have an engineering background myself. If you were to talk about imposter syndrome or an Achilles heel, that's something that I'm constantly aware of and working on. Luckily, the companies that I've been with have allowed me to develop that skill set from Twilio to Molten to Algolia. It's something you can develop easily. And my background is, in fact, business. So applying the two together has been lots of fun. So what caught your interest in the technical side of things? I don't know about you and everyone else listening. I'd love to hear your point of view. But for me, it's possibly the only and the best creative outlet, creative mode that I could find in myself. Not the best artist in the world possibly not the best writer in the world. But when it comes to design, I can design code. And it felt like black magic to me when I was doing it first. Suddenly you build something and it can actually be useful. And there are so few trades where you can learn to do that yourself for free in your own spare time. (laughs) Do it, the more avenues open up to you about what you can create and how you can change the world. Kind of crazy. I agree with you 100%. I think you don't have to know how to actually code to be able to be an architect and understand how all the pieces fit together and understand how to build systems at scale. And then you pass it on to the people that know how to implement that. Yes, you're right. It's like the best puzzle ever because there's always a trade-off. It's like chess, but terrible chess because every move you make, you <laughs> lose a bunch of stuff in tech debt. Right. Well, tell us real quick about Algolia. What do you guys do? Because it does relate to our API conversation anyway. Exactly. So we are indeed a product that's delivered through an API we do search and discovery. So if you go to websites like Lacoste, let's say, and type something in the search bar, the results will come from our engine delivered to that website over a JSON API, which I'm sure we'll cover in a little bit. One thing people normally get tripped up on, and I certainly did, is that when we say search, I use the example of the search bar. But actually, one of the amazing things about working in the search industry is that for an application, almost everything can be seen as search. If it's some information recall based on some intent, then clicking in the navigation for a website, that's search. Clicking through filters, clicking on product listing pages, all that, that's search. Personalization is as well. You could call it discovery, call it whatever you want, but at the end of the day, It's fetching some information based on some intent given to you. And one of those methods of intent is a search bar, sure. 
But if you think about it, there are a hell of a lot of others available to you through different interfaces. So is this a product that you can use to bring in multiple content systems together and index and search through? So for example, if you're an enterprise that has, uh, let's say, a knowledge base and has some videos on another site and has, let's say, Salesforce, can you bring all those pieces together through Algolia and then run a search? Precisely. It's integrating with Contentful quite a lot, which is why we're speaking. And you'd also integrate with maybe your e-commerce engine to pull the products in. Like you said, your FAQs or content section, some videos and whatever else you've got going. Very cool. So why don't we jump into APIs and what is an API? Everyone will have their own, let's say, analogy, real world analogy are really popular for API definitions. And most people use the waiter analogy, which you'll see if you're searching on Google, wherein you're asking the waiter for something on the menu. He's not making the dish, doesn't know how to make the dish, but he goes and asks the chef for the dish and then brings it back to you. In that sense, the API is a messenger allowing two applications to talk to each other. Now, you can think of it that way, and I like to think of it that way too, but also like a kind of contract, which still applies between the waiter and the chef here or the waiter and the person ordering. But the dish is very much the contract. So you read the menu, you read the documentation for the API, and that represents an agreement between you and the waiter. What you read, you then expect to get in representative form. So if you send a request structured in that particular way, detailing what it says in the menu, then the party or the waiter should respond with exactly what you asked for. So it's a messenger and a kind of a contract. I think that makes a lot of sense, actually. So the way I also think about it is like a remote control, right? Most people turn on the TV and they press the on off button. That's the API to black box. They just turn it on and then something happens inside of the television. They don't know what happens. They know that by clicking this button, it goes on. On and clicking it again, it goes off and then something happens. That's the API. That's the method to go ahead and turn on and turn off the TV. Yes, indeed. Let's come back to that example, actually, for REST when it comes to HATOS, that kind of REST standard or constraint, because the remote control example is really interesting there. Maybe we can leave that for later. So let's continue that conversation in the sense of you tell the API something and then it returns to you a response. I think that's where Jason comes in. Maybe Maybe you can explain what JSON is and why that's important. Exactly. So we'll just give the non-abbreviated term here for JavaScript object notation. In this case, we'll give the kind of formal definition and then kind of unpack it a little bit. But put very simply, it's just a format for storing and transporting data. The way I really distinguish JSON from any other is that it has no display capabilities, which is how I use it to compare and contrast to XML. My understanding is that it's built to work well with JavaScript, so it works well on the web, and it's based on a number of the data structures you'd be used to, like objects and arrays. Maybe the difficulty, if not the drawback, is that given it's a standard based on data structures, it doesn't have, let's say, a built-in enforced schema. You can use a schema that's been created. There is something called the JSON schema, which is a standard, but you're not forced to. So you have great flexibility in how the data is represented using those data types and structures. In one endpoint in an API, you could return a JSON string for an address. And in the other, you could return a JSON object with a key and a value for each part of the address. And without a schema, it makes it kind of hard to enforce consistency, especially if you have multiple teams working on the API. But that said, it's definitely the best data format we've got so far. 
can see it implemented very well today in all of the APIs that we use from Contentful to Algolia. So let's expand a little bit on this schema example there, because I think it's important to understand what is that relationship between the schema and the API itself? Is the schema kind of describing exactly how data will be returned and it's enforced? Or can you expand a little bit more on that? Yeah, for sure. So you can have schema at multiple levels, right? Let's take it at the JSON level, which is the data level. And essentially, it's just enforcing a structure, a given structure on your data. Now, that's what it is to me. And you can then validate that structure. So you can say, does this API response match the schema? And the schema can be what you document in your documentation. You can say, hey, for this API request, we've specified the ingredients listed on the menu and they're in bullet points. We'll give them back to you in bullet points. It's that same kind of enforcing of structure because you rely on data structure a lot in your front end. I'm sure you've been there yourself. And if structure changes from a string to an array or an array to an object, it could break your code. Yeah, most definitely it'll break your code. So, and I think when we jump into GraphQL, we'll be able to touch upon schema because it relies heavily on a schema for GraphQL. Yes, indeed, indeed. The thing that you've kind of hit on here, which is interesting, and we won't go down too much of a rabbit hole, is that we talk about code breaking when data structures change. And that's a kind of common theme through JavaScript because you are very much reliant on different code for different data structures. Now, you could take a different language, let's say, Go, which is very, very, very strict about data types and how they're enforced. You can deal with them differently. Or you could take a language like Clojure, which can attempt to deal with different data structures in the same way. Now, it does depend on what language you're using, but since JavaScript is one of the most popular front-end languages and what our frameworks are built on, I think we better stick with that one. So we kind of gave a good picture of APIs, schemas, and JSON. What was there before APIs? What did people do before APIs? My entire career, I've been working with APIs. I've never had to write an application before that was happening. And I'd love to hear your point of view on this. My point of view is that if an API is a messenger that allows you to embed part of one application in the other, or at least some elements or information from one application, let's take the example of the, the Google Maps API. I find it hard to imagine a world where that didn't need to happen. Now, whether we call them APIs or whether we used the REST standard on top of them or SOAP, that's certainly up for debate. But my impression is that APIs, no matter what way you call them or interpret them, must have existed from the very moment that applications needed to interact with each other and attract the origin for the actual API back to Roy Fielding's in the 2000s paper and the origin of Salesforce their XML APIs, and then stuff like Flickr. But you tell me, like, I can't imagine a world where applications don't need to be embedded in each other. So it must have existed in some form. Well, yeah, I think there was that world before 2000 and, <laughs> and no APIs, right? And I think this is, we're going to be talking about coupling and decoupling of applications. But way back then, obviously, applications were very coupled or very tightly integrated, which meant that if you needed to get data from another application, most of the time, there wasn't an API, you had to go directly into that database and grab the information, create your own processes out of it, which meant that whenever they changed that database or any little minor change, it broke your application, right? Because you didn't go through an API that enforced certain ways of getting in and coming back out. If they changed the data in a database, you were pretty screwed pretty much on your application. The world before APIs, it was pretty rough. Yes, indeed. And I guess we'll examine the latter 
counter wave of that decoupling when it comes to headless and what that means. But what you're describing going from the direct to database world to interacting with the API world is a nice level of abstraction, the introduction of the waiter and the remote control. Right. And then that doesn't include if you had a system that was completely outside of your organization, there was no way to get to it before right. the internet and before APIs. You just couldn't get to it. So why don't we talk about coupling and decoupling? Because I think that's an important aspect of APIs before we get into the details of REST and GraphQL. For me, it's about dependency. When you're decoupling two things, you're reducing the amount of dependency that they have on each other. So exactly like you said, if they're decoupled, when you change one thing, it's not as much work to make sure that the other thing works as well. Honestly, my favorite implementation of decoupling is in message-based systems or queue-based systems, event-based systems, where something happens in one microservice, one service, one part of the application. All it's doing is popping a message onto an event queue that says this happened and it has no clue what happens next. The queue deals with it and then other parts of your services can subscribe to the queue and learn about things as they happen. So decoupling is a really powerful way, as you said, of implementing efficient change. Definitely. But that also introduces synchronous and asynchronous. Do you want to talk a little bit about the difference between those? Because that's also very important when you go to an API and you wait for the response or you just tell it to do something and then it tells you when it's done. So the idea that you have to wait for something to be done, as you said, introduces a complexity because you need to make sure everything is synchronized if you're doing multiple things at once. And and I think we're going to come back to that with GraphQL and with REST, with HATAS, because with REST, you're sending one API request and you'll get back the results of that API request. And that might contain some hypertext, perhaps a link to the next page of data if there are multiple pages. So you then go and get the next page and then wait for that and so on. Now, that's one way of handling things, but it's more complex because you have to wait for one thing to complete than the other than the other. And obviously, we're working on things like GraphQL, which allows you to get all of your stuff at once, just through one endpoint and asking for exactly what you need and no more. So that's one aspect of the complexity of synchronization. But then the other aspect, as you kind of alluded to with message queues, is that you don't really know when something else has been acknowledged and when something else happens in another system. So yes, you're decoupling them and you don't have to rely on what other things are doing. But at the same time, you don't know what other things are doing. So you can't rely on them when you need to. <laughs> when something happens, for example, when you're trying to complete an operation that involves different parts of your application, then they need to be synchronized and they need to know what each other is doing to know when the operation is completed. Does that make sense? Completely. For example, when somebody withdraws $20 from their bank account, you want to make sure that's completed prior to allowing them to withdraw another $100, right? You don't want to allow them to continue withdrawing until you know the exact balance. That would be something that needs to be accomplished synchronously, correct? Indeed. And obviously, it happens in all sorts of places. You, you mentioned a particularly sensitive one. Another sensitive one is stock in e-commerce. Another sensitive one is, as you anything that involves money and and it happens where you have updates and posts as well as gets where information is changing and people are retrieving it at the same time and you need to 
make sure there's a proper order to those operations. Yeah. So what would be an example of an asynchronous operation that it really doesn't matter when it's finished, you just want it to start it and it could tell you when it's done? Well, search is a good example of that because you're requesting lots of information to display. So you're just waiting for those search results to complete, basically. And we can give it back to you whenever we can. And we generally do that in a measure of 25 milliseconds or under thereabouts. But at the same time, you're not potentially relying on that to complete a purchase or, as you said, to do your withdrawal. Do you have any examples from the Contentful world? Well, I think when you publish an article, you can use the CMA to publish and let it do its thing. And when it's ready, it could run some script that actually will move it to production and publish it. To you, it really doesn't matter. I mean, you're done publishing it. It'll do its thing. And when it's ready, it puts it in production. It's not something that you need to wait for that to happen to continue on creating another article, let's say. Indeed, there's not a high level of dependency there. Right. Right. Okay, let's get a little bit into the details. You did mention Contentful and APIs. They offer a lot of APIs, but there's something they call headless and API first. Can you explain what that means? Headless for me, in the context of a CMS, that the head is the presentation layer, the actual structure of the presentation layer of the website. To me, when you remove the head, as it were, and go API first, then your CMS is delivering data through an API to the front end. So it's using JSON, which doesn't give you anything to do with the presentation. That's up to you. And the CMS doesn't necessarily care what the front end is or what it looks like. So you can imagine that opens up a lovely world for you where you don't really care what the application is, as long as it can connect to the internet and handle JSON whether it's your car or your web application or the mobile application, it can easily get data from your CMS or from your search engine, whatever that is. And that to me is what a headless solution essentially is. To circle things back, decoupling, that's what it introduces, completely decoupling the front end from the back end. Therefore, you're able to present your data, let's say, on a website or present it through Alexa or present it through virtual reality or present it through whatever else you want. And by the way, when I said that word, she went on because I have one here in the room. So... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, we have the Alexa API. If you want to build a skill, I'm sure she'd be quite happy with that. Right. But yeah, you're absolutely right. We have now this idea of the world of data and how that's delivered. And then the world of how that data is presented or delivered to an end user through an interface. And whether, like you say, that's through voice or whether it's through a web app. Well, really, by decoupling those two problems, we can perhaps innovate faster in both of them. And I do feel like the introduction of APIs and that decoupling has really allowed us to move faster than we would if we had to deal with managing and innovating on this big beast that relied on the presentation for the data and vice versa. And I think to expand on the API first term, I think that seems like a really great way to develop any kind of app. Obviously, Contentful does it that way, where they created the API first, and then they built their web app to be able to manage the content. The beautiful thing about that is now you've built all of the infrastructure, that pipeline to be able to get to the data that you want and completely decoupled it from the front end. So as just a regular enterprise company, creating your app as an API first gives you the flexibility to decouple that front end from the back end. But also then if you do want to open it up to, let's say, your vendors, you already now have that API set up. When you do, I suppose, let's call it API last for the sake of it, then there are already so many architectural decisions made that it's really hard to make the switch. 
And that appears to be why API-first companies have been able to dominate the market. When you look at companies like Twilio or Commerce Tools, it's so hard for other companies to add on their API and make it as good that they've really struggled and it's taken them a while and a lot of re-architecture to do so. So it's a big advantage. Yeah, definitely. Not to mention also that you're able to separate your teams into front-end teams and back-end teams, people working on the API and people working on the front-end, so therefore people can focus on their expertise. Yes, that's precisely right. Yeah. Yeah, you've got a real nice specialization, and the more we see decoupling happening, the more that specialization is going to benefit. Right. Well, we haven't gotten into all the details yet. We've been promising about details, but there's just so many other questions here that really need to be answered. For example, we've talked about yeah. all the wonderful things about APIs, but there's always trade-offs with every technology. Can you think of, I can't, but I'm just a fan of APIs. But can you think <laughs> of any trade-offs? I'm sure you'll straighten me out. So every, and this is just a personal belief, every technology choice is indeed a trade-off for the simple fact that by doing that, you cannot do something else in the same amount of time. You might also, through an architectural decision, sacrifice another avenue that you could have gone down. Now, for APIs, as you say, to imagine a world in which they're not used. However, the trade-off, well, you have you have two things, right? You have, as a producer, as an application company, think about what a breaking change is for your users when you produce an API. You're an API company, you want to move quickly, you want to change things, improve things, and that might involve changing the structure of your data, changing the content of it when it's delivered so that you can make it better. However, because you don't deal in the presentation layer, your users are making those contracts like we talked about with the structure of the return data. They're trusting it as per your documentation. And they're doing that in any number of ways. I think there's a rule out there that, you know, if you can imagine any one way in which your API is contracted against, it is, even if it's just by one dude. But that one dude might be running an enterprise application for his entire company. So anytime you want to change the format of your data, you might wreak havoc in your user base. So you need to put a lot of work into tooling and graceful upgrades, letting users test different formats of the API and having a playground where they can test upgrades. So that's a lot of work. You have the same problem as a consumer. When you're just trusting some data that's returned, you can't really go in and change it. If there's something in one API call and you need a second one, you have to increase the time that it takes for your page to load potentially by waiting for two or three to complete. So you're relying on the way in which companies deliver their data to you. Obviously GraphQL can help you a little bit here, but that's the trade-off you might be making. And that's the trade-off we all make in, in kind of decoupling. We're relying on, let's say, the complexity being moved into the communication layer and having to make a contract between the two parties, if that makes sense. Completely. I could think of another negative. What happens when that API, if you're a third-party consumer of that API, and what happens when that API goes down and it's a critical part of your service? What do you do then? Yes, precisely right. Especially if that, I mean, I guess it doesn't matter too much if your content doesn't change that much. It's a content API. But as you say, if it's like a cart API or a checkout one and the stock is wrong or off, then it's absolutely terrible for your business. This is why we see so many variants of uptime when it comes to APIs, you know, because where do you draw the line? As someone designing an API, you want uptime, you want it to be responding to your users. But should you give them back money if it doesn't respond within a certain time? If the response is somewhat incomplete because there's a bad network and you needed to reduce the response size? What are your other service level objectives when it comes to the API? 
if you have multiple, for example, should you class yourself as down and unavailable if one part isn't available? And you'll notice this in various API status pages that you have to look very carefully about how they define downtime because for them it's quite hard, you know, to keep those multiple things all operating at scale at once incredibly quickly and their users are all, you know, for you, like you said, if that one part of that API is down for a few minutes, it's costing you hundreds of thousands of dollars potentially, whereas for someone else, it won't impact them at all. Definitely. Yeah, that totally makes sense. All right. So let's get into a little bit of the details. We've been talking about REST. We've been talking about GraphQL. First of all, let's talk about what are those? What exactly does that mean, REST and GraphQL? So as you know, we're in danger of some rabbit holes here and not to disappoint the listeners but also to give them some valuable information and not make things confusing. Maybe let's just give the definition and the actual name because they're kind of abbreviated. And then let's describe it in our own words. And then if we can give an example of the benefit or the trade-off, why they exist. And then listeners, if you want to learn more about it, there's a lot of reading out there and it goes very in depth. So you can choose the level of abstraction you want to obtain, but we'll give you a small introduction here. How does that sound, Marcelo? It sounds like a webinar in itself we could do. Indeed, <laughs> yeah. yeah, you know, everyone's got a different background, a different level of expertise, and let's just keep it simple and make sure that we can all, including myself, take something away from this. Yeah, no, I love it. Yeah, definitely. Why don't we start with restational state transfer? And I'm going to describe it as an architectural style developed for APIs. It was developed by a guy called Roy Fielding in about 2000. So the way I'm going to describe it is a set of rules to follow when designing your API. It's a standard and Roy thought very carefully about this. He was a pretty smart guy. So it gives your API certain benefits in design, which we won't go into deeply here. I'm going to use one of the six constraints, as he would call them, or six part of the standard, which is that you have a REST API. And if you want it to be truly, as they say, RESTful, then you need to be implementing something called HATOAS. And that stands for H-A-T-E-O-A-S, which stands for, are you ready? Hypermedia as the engine of application state. Wow, that's a mouthful. <laughs> but this one's really interesting, actually. And this brings us back to your remote control. So if we talk about what that means you know when you request an api response let's say it's for user slash one whatever that is let's just say you're getting a user it'll return json potentially and it will give you information in terms of data however some of that information might be a link to get more related information now you don't potentially know what that you know link is going to come back with it'll be described by the json response so you could have a link to the next page you could have a link to self or you could have a link to things related to the user. Now, this is a nice way of doing the coupling that we talked about because you have no real dependency on the URL structure of the API that you're using because you don't need to document or hard code all those resource URLs. You can just get the API by this API call and get back your user information and then get the URLs included in it to get more information. So it's a nice way of embedding other resources into it. One of those resources can be kind of links I really like that. And it's obvious that he thought deeply about it. There are some other aspects of the implementation that are up for debate. 
obviously, as is this one, in fact. But I recommend reading the paper as a place to start. Most modern APIs are indeed RESTful with also GraphQL on the side. And we're going to jump into GraphQL in just a second. But what are some of the drawbacks of using REST before we jump into GraphQL? Oh, that's a tough one for me. <laughs> <laughs> Big REST APIs over here. So just to close on, on, I suppose, that example that we were using previously, that is very much like the remote control that you talked about because you have certain buttons on that remote control. And when you you press one to turn on the TV, then you get other buttons and you can press those other buttons to follow the thread, let's say. Now, the thing is, that's where the downside lies because you are kind of following the thread. You do have to make multiple requests, handle multiple different things, and it can take time. I'm not going to say too much more because I'm a big advocate of REST APIs. If you have a perspective, Marcelo, that could give us some of the downsides, that would be interesting. Well, I was just going to add the concept of overfetching or underfetching, right? Mm -hmm. With REST and your endpoint, if you say, give me users, it'll return every piece of information, whatever the API decides to return to you, that's user, this right? Where with, let's say, GraphQL, which we'll get into in just a minute, you not only say, give me users, but you say exactly what you want. For example, I may only want the first name and last name of a user, and I don't care about their address. With REST, unless you create a brand new endpoint, if you do say, give me users, it'll give you everything about that user that the API said it will return versus, for example, GraphQL, where you as the client can dictate exactly what you want. What's your take on that? Yes, this is true. This is true. You get back. I mean, you have that lovely contract where you say this is the request. This is the response. It's a package. However, as you say, you, sometimes it can bloat the response or sometimes you need to fetch extra data to handle it. Where it works well is where you have a very well-defined domain and you know that you cases and you know exactly what your users are going to need from those API responses. That way you can break things down and kind of make it easier for the client. They know what to request and when they get what they need. However, as you've probably found, that's not always the case. <laughs> Sometimes, depending on the use case, you're fetching different stuff at different times and perhaps we don't want to impose that restriction on people. And if you ask a front-end developer perhaps to design an API, that's the first thing that they'll tell you. <laughs> they want to get different stuff at different times. And I'm not sure which team was developing GraphQL at Facebook, but it definitely has a massive popularity among the front end developers who actually have to consume the data that is delivered. So in summary, completely agree with you there. Well, let's talk about GraphQL now, because I think people have a pretty good idea of an API and everything around it and what REST is. So let's compare and contrast GraphQL. You just touched upon a little bit that it was created at Facebook. And in fact, I forget where exactly, but the there is a great documentary on GraphQL. I forgot who made it, but if you just do a Google search for GraphQL documentary, it is fantastic. I highly recommend people watching. And there's only one documentary, so it'll be very easy to find on Google. I'll do that, in fact. Let's talk a little bit about GraphQL. Give an overview of GraphQL and compare and contrast with REST. So let's call it what it is, is a query language, another specification. And there are multiple differences, but let's talk about the main one, of course. REST will have multiple endpoints. 
multiple resources, but GraphQL has one root endpoint, one URL that you request things from. Now, with a REST URL, what URL that you're hitting or requesting determines what data is going to come back. So you fetch a URL, which returns you a JSON piece of data, which is defined in the documentation. As you said before, you get what you get. Just to expand on that, just to make it really clear, an endpoint could be give me all the users or an endpoint can be give me all the books. But if you want the books information, you have to go to the book books endpoint. If you want users information in general, you have to go to the users endpoint. Indeed. We tried to tackle this at Molten by having something called includes for REST APIs, where we would give you the ability to get your cart and optionally include the cart items if you needed to. And I do believe that's quite a common pattern. But at the end of the day, it doesn't overall solve that problem because you can't pick individual fields in that data to fetch. You just get the blob of the cart item and the blob of the cart. And as you're alluding to here, GraphQL lets you be a lot more specific. You have one endpoint that you hit, and then you can ask it for exactly what pieces of data that you need. First of all, it helps a lot with those relational queries where first you need the user, then you need their favorite books and so on. You can get that all in one. And then it really helps you as a consumer of the API define what parts of the data you need and when. Right. So you are really decoupling that front end from the back end, right? Because you're not depending on your designers telling you, hey, I'm going to need this information, this information for the screen. And now you have to create a new endpoint. You basically have a variety of information that is accessible through this GraphQL, and they get to decide what to pull when. Right. And the beauty of that, as you say, decoupling is that now you don't even need to know to call users or slash users or slash books. You just call one thing and then ask it for stuff. Right. So yeah, it makes it a lot easier. Pure API calls and precision over what data is fetched. Exactly. Well, this leads to when you said you can just ask it for stuff, right? And the big question is, well, how do I know what to ask it? Are people like documenting all the stuff? I think this is a perfect place to introduce introspection for GraphQL. What do you think? You know what? I've been talking for a while, so I'm going to ask you to give us a brief introduction to introspection, Marcelo. In in my take, introspection is the ability for the schema itself to tell you about itself, to tell you, hey, these are all the queries you can run. These are what the queries are made out of. These are all the objects in my schema, and these are the types that are expected for each objects, and this is what I will return for you. And it's all done automatically by what's called the GraphQL server, right? That middle layer that actually takes the query language and executes it. So you can easily create your schema, update your schema, and automatically will be displayed or shown to the client. And there is, I believe, an underscore underscore schema that I think you can right. use within GraphQL that actually will return the schema. So then the client that is consuming yeah. can go through that and quickly build it. And in fact, I believe, if I'm not mistaken, Contentful will take your content model and automatically create a schema based off of that, which then you can easily consume it and review it via the underscore underscore schema. That is bang on. Yeah, it's beautiful, in fact, because, you know, APIs with big documentation teams is that constantly making sure everything is up to date. And we talked about breaking changes in the past. That's super key. So something that is self-documenting, you know, a chef that can write their own menu, it's really easy for a consumer to understand what's happening at any time. Definitely. Well, you know, we've covered, I think, just about everything. And we fixed the world already. So I think we should be all okay now. <laughs> oh, 
<laughs> I don't know if we did all of that, but I think we did give a really good overview of APIs. Is there anything else you would like to add to this conversation before we come to a close? We haven't really talked about where things could go. We've talked about REST and GraphQL and, and maybe the common themes are decoupling and abstraction to make innovation and usage easier. But to me, where things are going to go, you have data and presentation of data and you have communication of the data, let's say, between services or applications. I'd love to hear what you, Marcelo, and you, the listeners, think about this. But I feel really strongly that the more we decouple stuff, it feels like we reduce complexity, but we just move that complexity somewhere else. And because of that, I do believe that we're seeing a big growth in things like service meshes for applications and the message and event-based systems. And the more we begin to do that, the more we're going to have to deal with, as you say, synchronicity issues, communication issues, that kind of thing. And that's going to make it really the interesting world for us. The more we get better at query languages, the more we get better at delivering data. I'll just close by saying, on one hand, everyone wants to decouple stuff. But on the other hand, every company wants one unified view of their data and their customers. So things like those service meshes, the communication, data pipelines, and data storage, things like Segment, for example, as a great product, those are going to become key as APIs proliferate even further into the enterprise. And something else to consider as we decouple more and more is our dependency on all these external systems. And also, let's say you're a startup creating an app, and it's a wonderful app. What is your intellectual property in that app? Because let's say your app uses four key APIs, external, outside right. of your company. Is your intellectual property the way you use those APIs and mix it up and, and create something new? Where does that intellectual property start and end? I mean, that's obviously not a coding question, but it's still a valid question. Yeah, it's a great one, to be honest, because when you're writing code, obviously code is an asset, but it is replicable. Data is you know, one of those defensible things that we talk about quite often. And when you're pulling your data and sending it to other places, as you say, I'm not sure what the asset is of your business. It's a really interesting concept. Well, Matt, I would love to talk for another hour, and I'm sure we could because uh, I think I still have another 10 questions I could ask you. But unfortunately, we're completely out of time. I do want to thank you for being on the podcast and for sharing your awesome knowledge that you have. It was really nice of you to do that. Of course. And there's a lot more knowledge out there on the internet than we could possibly give here, right? So if anyone has articles they want to recommend, as you did, Marcella, with the graphic QL documentary. Again, the level of abstraction is key here. Like people want different kinds of introductions at different depths. It will be really interesting to see people move from one depth to the other gradually because there are so many acronyms, so many abstractions in terms of query languages and APIs and all the rest. Maybe we can work on it together to increase the level of depth while maintaining our level of understanding. But thank you for having me. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. If people want to get a hold of you, do you want to give a Twitter, an email, whatever you like? Oh, sure. It's just Matthew Foyle on Twitter. Simple as can be. Fantastic. And we'll put a link to it on our show notes. I'll also put a link to that GraphQL documentary on the show notes. Again, Matt, thank you so much. And to the rest of you, I'm glad you were here with us. Just a quick reminder to visit www.contentfulcreators.com for more podcast episodes, tutorials, webinars, blog articles, or to register for our meetup. So until the next episode, I'm Marcelo Lewin. Cheers, everybody.